You're listening to The Self-Advocate on CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5 FM on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam peoples. I'm your host, Alison Klein. On this episode, we're talking with a disability rights advocate and an author, Dorothy Ellen Palmer. Quick content warning she does mention about sexual abuse before we get started let's get into our theme song possibilities by key sarah key sarah is a mother-daughter duo from ontario and the daughter is on the autism spectrum go take a listen Radio 100.5 FM. You're listening to The Self Advocate. I'm your host, Allison Klein, and we're talking with Dorothy Ellen Palmer, who is a disability rights activist and an author. Lots to talk about. You also recently published your memoir, Falling for Myself, which I'm currently reading. It's amazing. It's a really interesting book and about your life. So let's start off about your book and about kind of the ins and outs with your book. I've noticed in your book that you're 
really you really delve deep into all parts of your life and all parts about your disability and at the beginning of your book you mentioned that you didn't feel comfortable with your disability until your 50s how did becoming older uh, help with your comfort level hmm, that's a good question i i think there's a a lot of truth to the idea that once you get older you can leave behind a lot of the fear of what people think of you and that was part of it but i also think it was sort of a culmination of various different experiences um, i was a teacher for three decades of my life um, and a union activist throughout that time and i learned how to fight for other people there i learned um, how to stand up for myself in public there and speak in public there and that taking a stand didn't always make you popular but it was still important to take it and especially during the Harris years here when teachers were under attack the way they have been again with the recent conservative in government that was a really good lesson and then when I was in my 50s I started to meet the organized disability movement online the internet has made it possible for those of us who can't get out very often to meet each other learn from each other share with each other you know have joy with each other and i encountered a number of disability activists who made it possible for me to put aside my shame and then my body was the third thing that finally said to me you can't hide this anymore um, i had been born with multiple birth defects in both my feet i'd had multiple surgeries as a child and i most spent a good deal of my life trying to hide that and pretend i wasn't disabled and then in my 40s i started needing a crutch and in my 50s i started needing a walker and now i use both a wheelchair and a mobility scooter and of course once you are visibly disabled there's no hiding it anymore so that was the point with all of those things coming together at the same time that I decided it was time to be proud of who I was. Yeah, that's what I've been reading in, in your book, especially as a child growing up in the 60s. And really, it was it sounded quite difficult, especially because I also noticed that you, you were also adopted. No, no I'll explain that for you. That's OK. Um, I was almost three before I was adopted. I had uh, six different foster homes and two long stints in convalescent hospitals. I had what they called failure to thrive. I was probably a traumatized and depressed little kid. And um, the motif and the expected narrative of an adopted child is to absorb the notion that you are a burden and you should be grateful for being adopted. And that runs so parallel and so interestingly close to the motif of the way disabled people are supposed to behave. Our singular narrative is, is that we are supposed to be grateful for scraps and we are supposed to accept that we are a burden. We're not really equal citizens. We're special needs. We're, we're burdensome and be grateful for whatever we get. And so fighting out of both those shames as a girl born in 1955 was not easy um the women's movement that wave of the women's movement was sort of something that carried me along and through university and helped me realize that a lot of the things that women had accepted we didn't need to continue to accept but throughout my childhood i just accepted them and decided i was the one at fault and i was dirty and i was shameful and there was nothing that could change that it took you know, a women's movement larger in the world for me to change some of that. However, I noticed that you have a special bond with your adopted father and how your adopted father almost tried very hard to say that both of your parents loved you no matter what, even though you're not their biological child. And the moment when you were swimming in the in the lake with your dad and that close bonding time and you asked did you know about my birth family and he goes no but i still love you still the same 
And I also noticed in your book that you don't talk about that, that shame or that about your adoption with your mom. I, I wonder why that, that was, or did you ever eventually talk to your mom about being adopted? Um, there's a little bit later in the book that, yes, I do. But I, I guess my, my position and my dad is really interesting. He was wonderful with me in private. He would never in a million years oppose my mother <laughs> in any way, shape, or form ever with word one. So he validated me privately, but she ruled the roost. She was the force of nature. And so I always had a lot of love for my dad, but I always had that bit of anger that he, there was a gap between what he would do privately and what he would do publicly. Um, and my life would have been a lot better if he'd been able to stand up to my mom for me and been my parent, um, and he couldn't do that. So it was that position of complicity is something I've been aware of ever since, particularly around disability, that there are a lot of people who will sympathize with disability rights, but won't do anything. <laughs> and I think that's something that uh, sympathy is never enough. There, there's got to be action along with it. And then to answer your question about my mother, yes. Later in life, we did try to have several discussions. It was very hard on her. She had had several miscarriages before they finally adopted. And then after adopting twice, she had two natural children. So our family was a blended family of four kids, two adopted and two not. And I think it was very hard on her because just the way a 1960s girlhood you know, tried to put me in a box, her inability to bear children put her in a box in the 1950s. And so she was very conflicted about um, all of that, I think. And it, and it wasn't easy for her. She didn't, she didn't have a close relationship with her mother, so she didn't know how to have a close relationship with me. Ironically, I had a very close relationship with her mother, my grandmother. And it, it sort of healed me a lot because of that. It sounds like that. And it sounds like you've healed a lot and it progresses that you've healed a lot throughout your memoir. I also took a course through Athabasca University, master's level course for my master's degree on how to write a memoir. Mm. Your book fits right in. That's funny. <laughs> And, and in this course that I took, it talks about how writing a memoir for anybody can be a very, it can be very painful, but it can also be very cathartic. And I see that in your story. I also noticed in your book that you've cut it up into the alphabet, each mm -hmm. chapter is mm -hmm. each alphabet. And did that come from being a teacher and a union member or where did that come from? Um, that's actually one of the more difficult uh, genesis of the story and content warning. I'm going to deal with infant sexual abuse for a second here. Um, at some point in one of the foster homes, I was sexually abused before the age of three. And one of the things I would do in my memory to keep the man away was to chant the alphabet because some of the times when I was sitting up, he would go away because he would say I was awake. And so I would chant the alphabet to keep myself awake. Um, that all gets explained later in the book. And so I used that alphabet as sort of a charm and a way to get at all parts of me as well. Um, later in life, I also developed this idea called the alphabet argument that if most of the general public has an idea about something and they're sitting, say, around a D or a C or an E along the alphabet, and you want to move them down to LMNOP, you have to go to QRSTUVWXYZ before they move to LMNOP. Because if you only go to LMNOP, they're only going to move from C or D to F or G. So I used the alphabet in several ways throughout my life, and that's two of them. That's so interesting. I, I picked that up. I thought, wow, like that. I, I go in thinking it's being your teacher side. Mm -hmm. 
You also talk about being a faller from the intro in your book as well, and, and how you describe being a faller, and, but not over-dramatizing it either, which is interesting. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, falling is one of the central motifs of my life. Um, I fell all the time as a kid. My leotards were always bloody. And my mother always insisted on mending them. So they were mended like 20 times. And I was always very embarrassed about that, even though, you know, in the 1960s, it wasn't uncommon for girls in particular to walk around with mended leotards because their parents all came through the depression and you didn't buy new ones just because you had a hole in them. You fixed the hole, you know, so it wasn't as shameful as it would be for little girls, many little girls today, right, um, where the throwaway society would reign. But it, the more I fell, the more I resisted it. And then the more I resisted it, the more I fell. So eventually I had to realize that falling is just something I do. Um, as a drama teacher, I, I tried to incorporate what I knew about stage fighting and falling safely that I'd also learned in physio. And then I just started to take it as falling is what I do. So I might as well fall for myself. I might as well fall in my own way. And eventually that metaphor got extended to falling about caring for myself and falling about seeing the worth in, in the disabled community and then falling for the community as well. And lastly, about before we go to our first PSA break, the most interesting part that I read in your book, uh, the, the quote is, if you only get one thing about my disabled life, please get this, it's expensive. For some reason that brought me, like that brought me into the book. And of course it's expensive, with me because I have a learning disability and the amount of therapy, the amount of support that I need around me. Mm -hmm. Did your parents ever support you or pay for, for many surgeries or many supports around you when you were growing up? I'm going to try not to laugh at that one. <laughs> um, I, had, uh, I had multiple surgeries. It was all free. Thanks to OHIP. I live in Ontario. Um, I had it at Sick Kids Hospital. Um, one of the best surgeons of the globe at the time was a guy named Dr. Robert Salter, and he was wonderful to me. Um, he's a fabulous doctor and great with kids, and became surgeon of chief in, at Sick Kids. Um, they denied everything after that. They resented the money they had to pay for my orthopedic shoes. They got mad at me when I fell and scuffed up the shoes or broke over the shoes over the side because my feet twist and break the shoe. Um, no, they were not in any way generous with any kind of money and just reinforced that I was a, an expensive burden that they really didn't like paying for. And on that note, let's take our first note. <laughs> <laughs> Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM is political. Co-op Radio is poetry. Co-op Radio is tango. Co-op Radio is gay. Ecology. Comedy. Feminism. Philosophy. Yoga. Reggae. Bicycles. Trade unions. Gospel. Live. Local. Asian. African. Vancouver Co-op Radio is community. Your community. Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO, 100.5 FM, all different, all the time. And we're back on CFRO Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM. You're listening to The Self-Advocate. I'm your host, Allison Klein, and we're talking with Dorothy Ellen. Palmer, who is a disability rights activist and an author, and her most recent book, Falling for Myself, is a memoir about her life. So we're going to change the interview a bit from her book to her more activism side. And so the first time I heard about you was through The Fold. And that's why I bought the book. In your speech, 
at the fold, you talk a lot of notes and a lot of different aspects of writing and being a disability rights activist. The big one is that Andy mentioned before that you were a teacher and a union leader and that helped you bring yourself to the forefront of fighting for yourself and others in the disability community. What made you be drawn to be teaching and becoming a union leader? Hmm. I think a lot of women in the 1970s who secretly wanted to be writers became teachers. I think a lot of people who secretly want to be writers become English teachers. Um, I became an English teacher and a drama teacher. And of course, like many young, foolish teachers thought that that would give me the summer to write. What a ridiculous notion that is, especially when you have little kids. But anyway, um, and I guess I was always a reader. I uh, read nonstop and had excellent English teachers in high school. And I think the model of that made me want to share that with other kids. Um, I guess also it was a safe profession for a woman. It was something that the union would offer you a certain degree of protection and you weren't going to be fired and you weren't going to be laid off. It, you know, it really was seen um, when I started teaching, um, when I went into teacher school at the end of the 70s, it really was seen as a place um, that was progressive. I went to Simon Fraser University for my teacher training. And it was seen as a very progressive, we were in what was called the multicultural model, where we were actually starting to flip between multiculturalism and anti-racism and what was the difference and what should we be doing, what did it look like? And that was incredibly, um, you know, ground cutting in 1980. <laughs> you know, so um, all of those reasons attracted me to doing that work. And Simon Fraser University, even today is, fairly progressive. I, they started progressive. They mm -hmm. continue to be, to be progressive. You also talked at the fold about inspiration porn and how much you're against it. And I noticed that in your book as well, that you were very trying so much to get a, away from being an inspiration to others and especially in the disability community and in being an adopted child. But uh, sometimes what I found is that even though you try to get away, you still come as an inspiration to some because you were able to do so much in your life. Why are you so against inspiration porn? Let's start off with that. Sure. Um, inspiration porn is a term coined by a disability activist that I really admire. Her name was Stella Young. And she was the person, she was an Australian stand-up comic. She was a, a disabled person who was very proud of her disability. And she was the one who started to notice that there's this narrative where disabled people are only supposed to be inspiring. They're silent, they're the prop in the story, they make able people feel good about themselves when these able people bend down to beneficently help us. So inspiration porn is all the stories about, you know, the athlete who comes to a school and eats lunch once with a bullied autistic boy. And the hero of the story is the athlete. He gets the microphone. The disabled child never gets a voice. So that's what's wrong with, with inspiration porn that our only function is to be silenced and to be inspiring for other people. We're never allowed to speak for ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we must forever forsake the word inspiration. Stella Young was inspiring to me, always will be. Um, disability activists like Alice Wong are inspiring to me, always will be. But there's this clear delineation between inspiring because of who you are and what you do and inspiration porn which would only let us be inspiring by how we make able people feel. And, and you blend that really well in your book as well. 
You also mentioned in your talk at The Fold about trying to fight against both ageism and ableism. That's difficult. And how did you find about ableism and ageism and how do you blend those two together? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm a member of the Accessibility Advisory Committee for Fold and they have year after year developed an expanding definition of diversity, an expanding definition of accessibility, which includes physical accessibility, which includes accessibility for other kinds of disabilities besides mobility disabilities, such as having CART. And as that expansion continues, I began to realize the concept of universal design really is universal that I'm not just physically disabled because of my feet, I'm getting older and I'm losing my hearing. So as a senior, I really welcome CART or captions or anything where I don't have to depend on lip reading because I really do lip read a lot. Um, I'm deaf in one ear and hard of hearing in the other. So it's really important that I see that intersection between anything that makes something more accessible is going to benefit a lot of people. And some of the people it benefits the most will be the 23% of us who are disabled and the 29% of us growing who are seniors. Um, so that huge chunk of the population needs to be respected and included and accommodated. And, and I've noticed as well, and not only at the Fold, but also at events in Vancouver, that it's growing and they're really trying to get more and more accessible venues, accessible things and have events that are fully accessible for everyone. I think it's progressing. I think there's been a lot of resistance. It's taken, you know, I've been at this now almost four years. And when I first started asking people, please don't uh, organize, read at, or appear at or attend any inaccessible events, people just looked at me and said, well, then I won't be able to go anywhere. And that was right. <laughs> that maybe, you know, some 95% of literary events, readings, launches, festivals are physically inaccessible, let alone inaccessible all the other ways to all the other disabilities. That is changing. But there is also this resistance in the arts about hanging on to beautiful old buildings or hanging on to signature venues, places where they have always had their events. Um, and this, this excuse, well, it's just too much money. Of course, no other marginalized group would ever be told we cost too much money to be included. Um, so it, it's, it, a lot of the tropes are still there, even in the progressive mind of people who organize can-lit events that sometimes create resistance. And it's changing and it's getting much better, but we're nowhere near done. Of course, like we're never done working, mm. moving forward. So that takes us to our next PSA break. Did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio CFRO 100.5 FM has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time. And we're back with CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. And you're listening to The Self-Advocate. I'm your host, Alison Klein, and we're talking with the disability rights activist and author, Dorothy Ellen Palmer. 
you also talk a lot about your adoption and being adopted at three years old and the traumas that you've done. Um, have you been able to to become an activist for other adoptees? Um, I spent some of my life doing that in my 20s, 30s. Um, I belong to a group called Parent Finders and I certainly participate online. Um, there are a whole number of groups online such as DNA detectives. Um, I found my birth mother about eight years ago when the legislation changed. Most people don't know this, but it was illegal for me to get any original information until I was about 52, about eight or nine years ago, I guess now. And um, then I found a, a half brother through DNA testing and found my father's family uh, when I found my half brother through DNA testing. And DNA testing has made it possible for so many adoptees to search out the reality of their story. Um, too much of our story is often shrouded in bad information or lost information or inadequate information in paperwork, whereas DNA doesn't lie. So there's this whole sort of cottage industry sprung up um, around helping people use DNA testing to find their families. And in many cases like mine, it was successful. So you were successful in, in finding your family. What was that experience like to be able to actually meet your family, your birth family, after so many years? Yeah, well, my, my story is a little bit complicated. My mother was very young, working class girl, um, and was the victim of date rape. And so she hadn't told anyone except her husband, and she had two other kids after me. When she got the first letter from me, to her credit, she told her whole family, and we met once before she died. Um, she was already in her 80s when I met her, and uh, she died uh, after, our, after one meeting. Um, my birth father was dead by the time I found his family. My half-brother is related to me through our birth father. Um, and, you know, that's been fabulous and, and really wonderful. And, and I feel as close to him as, as a brother and a sister should. Um, and I don't think the success of a, of a story hinges on whether or not you should do it. I think you have the right to do it. You have the right to the information. You have the right to the medical history. I mean, you can imagine what it was like living for me, not knowing if my feet were caused by genetics or something else. And when I had children, not knowing if I would pass it on to them. I mean, it's a human right in this day and age to have your medical history. Um, so all of those things, I think, are important, whether or not the success of the individual reunion is great. It's, it's the story and the information that is also really important. What a whirlwind, like it must have been a whirlwind where you find them and you think, oh my goodness, what a story and that's part of my life and that's part of my history or my, and my children, I can pass it on to my children. Mm. Also in the beginning of your book as well that I noticed that you're, you have children of your own. Did that ever help you that now you've seen something that's now related to you? to you or a person that's related to you before your adoption story? Yes, it was um, really, really um, tying to them that I finally knew someone to whom I was related by blood. But it was also at the very same time, a double-edged sword because I didn't get that until I was, you know, 25 and 29. <laughs> um, and it was still a mystery and I was always nervous about what I might be passing on to them that I didn't know and I couldn't tell them and I couldn't tell a doctor you know because I just had to say I didn't know um, so it, it yes I think that it, it's that double-edged sword it's that duality it's the sense of these are my family and really truly my family that I've never had my two children you know and I love them both dearly but at the same time, there's this edge of, well, where are the rest of my relatives? Why don't I get to at least know who they were? That carried with me my whole life until I was able to fill in those whole blanks. And with that, let's take our last 
PSA break. Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, an idea worth stealing. Vancouver's original community radio station since 1975. And we're back on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 with the self-advocate. I'm your host, Alison Klein, and we're talking with Dorothy Ellen Palmer. Thank you so much for joining with me. So we're living in a strange time with COVID-19 and the pandemic. What have you been doing since the pandemic? Um, That's a really good question. I'm glad you've asked me it because I think we shouldn't be talking about writing or disability activism or ageism or ableism without its current context. It's so important as it's bringing to light all of those things in a new and urgent way. Um, My book, my memoir with with Wolsack and Wynn came out in November. (laughs) A very few short months later, as in uh, March 7th, I went into full isolation and I haven't left my apartment. What am I at now? 78 days. And I mean, literally have not left my apartment, have not opened the door to go to the garbage chute because my doctor said point blank, you are at risk not only of the virus because I have heart disease and hypertension, um, you are at risk of the ageism and ableism that might not give you care. Because we had seen over and over again in surges Um, that there were protocols in place where decisions were made that disabled people or older people may not be given ventilators or maybe taken off ventilators to be given to a non-disabled younger person. Um, That whole rise of eugenics and that concretization of eugenics with, you know, politicians openly saying, oh, it's just old people. You know, you don't have to worry. Everybody who's normal will be fine. Um, which we see, you know, which is ripped off the veil of how badly we treat seniors in seniors centers and long-term care homes and the utter, you know, lack of human decency protecting either the workers or the residents there with their lack of PPE, their lack of attention and lack of sanitary measures and everything. All of that is really, uh, critical to understanding that ageism and ableism are all fueled by the kind of capitalism we live in, where profit makes it possible to define some bodies as unworthy, some bodies as disposable, and that's exactly what we need to fight. And it sounds like you have been fighting for against ageism and against ableism and through the online context, especially because it is COVID. People are getting sick, people are dying. And we mm-hmm. see that, especially in Vancouver, where the first case, the first death of COVID-19 was in a care home. And it was one of the first deaths within Canada, not only in Vancouver, but within Canada was at a care home. And it's especially bad in Van- the Lower Mainland, in Vancouver, where higher amounts of COVID-related illnesses and deaths are in seniors' homes. Yes, we're finding that right across the globe with carceral culture, any place where people are packed together. So long-term care homes, prisons, orphanages, all of those places where people are packed together in inhuman ways, um, have to breathe each other's air. All of those spaces seem to be putting both the residents and the people who work there at a much higher risk. And surprisingly enough, because I work with the homeless population, that they're even more at risk, and not mm-hmm. only at risk of COVID, but at risk of relapse with drug addiction, mental health issues, and the mental health system is going to be struggling even more, from what I've been reading mm-hmm. as well. So it's a whole gamut of, of issues here. Yeah, it's all linked. My daughter is a public health worker in Toronto, uh, working with the homeless population. And their uh, rates are much higher than anywhere else, um, partly to do with the shelter system, which until recently packed uh, people in like sardines and 
the Toronto shelter system had to go to court to observe social distancing to put the beds further apart. Can you imagine that? They had to go to court to save those people's lives. So it, it's something that whenever capitalism decides a person is disposable, where they're not productive, they don't have a job, they don't produce labor and they don't consume things that other people produce by their labor. They, that attitude is that we're disposable. We're not worthy. We're not, you know, the Nazis called that life unworthy of life. And some of that is exactly what this pandemic is exposing that just the way um, delivery people who are frequently non-unionized, underpaid, underprotected, racialized people, marginalized people on many fronts are going to be some of the people who are going to have the highest exposure and death rates, just the way grocery workers who fit that same demographic are going to have some of the highest uh, infection and death rates. All of the disposable people are the people who work on the so-called uh, lower end of the wage scale, we're now discovering how important those jobs really are and that they're not disposable at all. And funny enough, because I have friends who have intellectual disabilities, they tend to be the ones who are working in the grocery stores. Mm -hmm. So they're even more vulnerable to this as well. They're vulnerable because of their own health issues and vulnerable that because they're not paid well enough because it's difficult for them to go to school that mm -hmm. this is the best job they can get and they're risking their lives for the greater society as well. Yes, yes. Multiply marginalized working class people are at this very high risk. Of course, a lot of professions are also at high risk. Nurses, doctors, all of the people who work in hospitals but we can't forget the orderlies and the people who clean the hospitals. They're also at very high risk. So I think it's all of those intersections of marginality can really work to raise the risk level in the pandemic. And, and that's the kind of thing we have to keep talking about and making clear. You also mentioned that you were a union leader while you were teaching. How high up the union as a leader did you become? Um, I took several different um, portfolios, I guess you'd call them. There were different areas in the union that I was interested in, but it was always at the school level. I was branch president of my school, meaning that um, I was picket captain, meaning I called all the meetings. My school was a big school. There were over 100 teachers. Um, and I would go to district meetings where we would all meet together as a district. I ran one year as district vice president and I won, but I didn't like that work at all. I really wanted to be the head of the union in my own school. It was much more fulfilling to me to do that. While you were, and funny enough, my first course in my master's degree at university was on union, uh, mm -hmm. the history of unions within Canada. So another yeah. connection there. While you were a union leader, did you ever come across fighting for disabilities at all? Not very much. Um, the OSSTF, the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation that I was a member of, um, had a very good and very progressive health and safety um, committee and had a lot of very good contractual health and safety positions. But in many cases, the, the position of OSSTF and keep in mind that I've been retired now for over a decade, at the time was to retire disabled teachers out of teaching, to retire them and pension them off fairly. There was almost no, at least that I ever encountered, um, movement to hire disabled teachers into teaching. That has changed a little, um, but at the time there wasn't any of that. And there was very little sense of how do we keep this teacher who is disabled? Um, when I announced that I had to retire because my disability made it really hard for me to teach, everybody just said, yep, goodbye. <laughs> you know, there, there really wasn't a sense that um, that was our fight too. I think that's changing, but it, it wasn't at the front of, of OSSTF's consciousness at the time. There are, of course, now teachers in wheelchairs. There are teachers 
uh, with multiple disabilities, and there should be, and I hope there'll be more of them. Other than being a union leader, a teacher, a person, an author, and a disability rights activist, do you do any other rights activism as well? No, I'm tired. <laughs> you also do the fold. You know? Yes. I mean, you know, in Canlit, I really do try to keep raising questions of accessibility and a broader definition of accessibility. Um, no room full of abled people under 50 is diverse. And that's something Canadians really have to wrap their brains around. That if there any room that doesn't include disabled people, any room that doesn't include seniors, and by that I mean over 65, not over 50, um, isn't diverse yet. We're still working towards diversity. But if it's a room full of young, abled people, no matter what their other diversities are, that room isn't diverse yet. And we need to continue working to make it diverse. One last question before we get your contact info on how to find your books. What would you like the broader society to know about disability? Um, I think I would like to see disability normalized. As I said before, we're 23% of the population. And it, creating an environment of universal design only helps everyone. And it's important that the stigma ends, um, that people begin to see that we have human rights, that accessibility and inclusion are part of our human rights, and we have a lot to offer. We have a lot to bring to the table. In the pandemic, for example, we know an awful lot about how to survive inaccessibility. And that inaccessibility is what abled people are now facing for the first time. And some of them are not handling it well. <laughs> you know, so we can help, I think, uh, give some counsel and some guidance about how to handle having to stay home. So all of those things, I think I'd like people to normalize uh, disability in their own lives. Listen to us, and especially when there is that COVID, as you mentioned, that who have a disability, who are marginalized, actually have gone through this. We have something there that we're not actually, we actually have something tangible there that can help mm. others. Yeah, right. Real experience. Real mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. How do I find your books? How does, can the listener find your books? Um, you can buy it at the publisher site, We'll Second Win. Um, during the pandemic, I am going to ask that nobody buys a printed book of my book. I don't think a delivery worker should have to risk their lives um, to deliver a book. But please buy any book anywhere it's on sale. Um, it's on sale at Amazon. It's on sale at Will Second Win. It would be on sale on any um, independent bookstore. If you frequent an independent bookstore in Vancouver, many of them have a link that you can through them buy the ebook. So during the pandemic, I'm asking that people only buy the ebook um, because I, I, like I say, I don't think it's appropriate to send people, to unprotected delivery workers into the street to deliver a book. They are risking their lives for essentials of groceries and prescriptions and medical equipment. That I understand, but I can't in all conscience ask them to risk their life to bring a book. So during this pandemic, read Dorothy Owen Palmer's books on ebook, and it will help pass the time. It will support a Canadian author and a Canadian author who has a disability and a disability rights activist. To end the show on CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5 and the Self-Advocate Show, my last song is Kiprios, and his song is called Better Miracle. He's a local rapper from Vancouver. Even though he doesn't have a disability, he does talk about in this song how to have a better day and not a miracle. Enjoy more programming. Today, my window, the sun came through. 
today was a day I thought I'd look to my window felt the pain that I knew the son heard about it when he came to came through good looking out I needed you today was a day that didn't need rain my window looked to me to make a change the sun rising to the occasion came through good looking out I needed you oh oh myself I'm gonna be okay remember back then I've come a long way the dream may never ever be the same but came true still here with you and that'll do I know the road I'm on is not an easy way remember that I will define the path I take the dream yeah I'm a dreamer what can I say came true still here with you and that'll do I feel it's in my fingers I know it's in my soul now don't need I don't need a miracle just want to get a bit better it's in my fingers, I know it's in my soul now Don't need, I don't need a miracle Just want to get a little better oh, oh. I'm not asking for a miracle oh, oh. Just want to get a little bit better mattering in life i feel it's in my fingers i know it's in my soul now don't need i don't need a miracle just want